Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. All right, so this is week two in our series about free grace called No Strings Attached. And last week, we talked about what is known as the gospel. That word means good news. And the good news is this. Jesus died for our sins, and he freely offers us forgiveness and eternal life by his grace simply in the moment we believe in him, that salvation is by faith alone. Now, today, we're going to elaborate on this topic, and we're going to talk about assurance of salvation, the idea that once you receive this free gift of eternal life, it cannot be lost. And then we're going to talk about rewards, rewards here on earth and rewards one day in heaven. So let's dive in and let's begin with assurance. First of all, we believe that assurance of salvation, knowing for certain that you have eternal life with God in heaven and that can't be lost, is absolutely vital in the Christian life. And why is this so important? Well, first of all, if you lack assurance of salvation, it can lead to fear, it can lead to frustration, it can lead to a constant state of worry. Because you're never really sure if maybe my next sin will be the one that causes God to hate me, kick me out of heaven. And since the Bible clearly tells us we continue to sin, we can never get traction in our relationship with God and feel like we're growing in Christ. And second, a big, big part of our relationship with God, according to the Bible, is being grateful to God for all that he's done for us. But if we lack that assurance of salvation, it's impossible to show gratitude to God for our eternal destiny because in the back of our minds, it could be ripped away from us at any time. Or as some people teach it, you don't even know for sure if you have it right now. And also a lack of assurance of salvation can lead to bad thinking. You end up going through life going, man, if I just do enough good works, then God will be pleased and I'll make it into heaven. But as we talked about last Sunday, that's not the gospel at all. So let's dive in and look at what the Bible has to say. Let's start with John 5, 24, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, right now, eternal life and will not be judged, that's in the future, but has crossed over, past tense, from death to life. This verse teaches that the moment you believe, you have eternal, everlasting, never-ending life. Now, if you have something that's never going to end and it ends, you, you gets taken away from you, you never had it in the first place. And this verse promises that in the future, you will not be condemned. And in the past, you've already crossed over from death to life. So past, present, and future, three promises from Jesus that if you put your faith in him, that cannot be lost. You can indeed know you're saved. Look at Romans 8, 38 to 39. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I got to ask you here, what is left out? What could possibly become between you and Jesus according to this passage? I mean, there's nothing. This covers time, matter, space, everything in between. 
And then there's the classic verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, if you currently have eternal life, by definition, that can't be lost. Let's say that an executive from the Bluebell Corporation gives me a call and says, Brian, we are going to provide you with an eternal, never-ending supply of Bluebell ice cream. Now, what would that mean? First of all, it may not be about 300 pounds in a couple months, right? But second, it means I'm always going to have eternal life, right? That concept of eternal life, eternal bluebell, I guess, life, whatever you want to call that. I will have eternal bluebell life coming my way. And if it stops coming my way, if they stop giving it to me, then they were lying in the first place. See, if you have eternal life, then you lose it. You didn't have eternal life. Now, there's a whole branch of theology that insists that individuals must somehow clean up their act before they can come to Jesus. It contradicts over 150 passages in the New Testament alone that say salvation is a free gift of God's grace received by faith alone. But a lot of people still teach this, a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers. In fact, some go so far as to say, you can't even know for sure if you're a Christian until you prove it by acting like it. And if your life doesn't look like the way we think it should look, you probably aren't saved. You ought to question whether you're a Christian. So what happens is then people start living their lives trying to manufacture, trying to force good works to prove they're saved. They serve God to prove that they're saved rather than out of gratitude for all God has done for them. Or they do kind things to other people so that God will see their good works and love them more. It becomes a very works-based salvation. It's not at all what God intended. Former Dallas Theological Seminary professor Zane Hodges once responded to this belief system by comparing a father's response to his son with this false line of thinking. And I want you to listen carefully to this. I've shared this with some of you before, but it's so good, it bears repeating. Hodges said, it would be difficult to imagine a conversation like this between a father and his son. The son says, Dad, am I really your son? And the father replies, well, young man, it depends on how you behave. If you really are my son, you will show this by doing the things I tell you to do. If you have my nature inside of you, you can't help but be obedient. To which the son asks, but what if I disobey you a lot, Dad? And the father answers, then you have every reason to doubt that you are truly my son. And Hodges continues, what sort of a father would talk to his son like that? Would he not rightly be accused of cruelty for dealing in this fashion with the anxieties of his child? At a moment like this, is not his child's most urgent need a sense of acceptance and parental love? But to withhold this acceptance in order to secure his boy's obedience is to traffic in rejection and fear. Folks, God wants you to be sure that the moment you believe in him for salvation, you are his eternally. You don't have to worry about that. And I'm telling you, when you get to that point in your life, there is joy, there is peace, there is freedom. Just knowing God loves you for who you are, and nothing can change that. Now, after you have assurance, what's next? Like, are all the good works we do for nothing? Why go through all the trouble of doing good deeds in life if your salvation isn't in question? Okay, that leads us to our second topic, the topic of rewards. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this. When we talk about rewards, what we mean, they're the blessings that God provides to his people. And those rewards can happen either in this life or one day in the life to come. 
Now, regarding eternal rewards, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what those are going to look like, but we know they're going to be amazing. Revelation 22, 12 says, look, I'm coming soon. This is Jesus talking. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So these rewards are going to be determined by what we do with the life God has given us here on earth. And there are a lot of passages in this book right here that talk about doing good works. And here's the problem. It's very easy to read some of these passages and think that they're dealing with salvation, whether you're going to heaven or whether you're going to hell. And that's where a lot of people get confused. It's where the faith plus work salvation comes from. But I'll tell you this, anytime you run across a passage of scripture that says anything whatsoever that works are involved, you can rest assured it's not talking about salvation to heaven or to hell. It's talking about rewards and consequences, either here in this life or the life to come. And I'm going to share an example with you here. This is Paul talking. Listen carefully. Paul says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, clearly, this verse is all about works, what we do, right? In fact, Paul says wrongdoers at the very beginning. This verse says nothing whatsoever about faith, and yet Paul says that these individuals will not enter the kingdom of God, right? Wrong. See, he doesn't use the word enter. He uses the word inherit. And folks, those are two entirely different concepts. Entering a house is way different than inheriting a house. Am I right? I mean, if they're the same thing, then I would love to enter some of your homes. You got some sweet homes. <laughs> Please invite me over. Be like, hey, I'm here. Put me in your will, baby. Now, entering a house is different than inheriting a house. Entering the kingdom of God is different than inheriting blessings within that kingdom. Paul is talking about future rewards here, an inheritance in the kingdom of God. When we receive eternal life, we get to enter into heaven. But this phrase, inherit, in the Bible, you can look it up. It refers all the time to extra blessings, receiving special blessings. So if you want to inherit more blessings, more promises, more uh, just rewards in heaven, then be faithful with the time God's given you here on earth. You see, how we live our lives here on earth is going to determine the benefits that we reap one day in heaven. So seeking rewards is a good thing. And that brings me to a truth that I know a lot of people struggle with. God wants us to desire rewards. God wants you to desire rewards. You know, in the Bible, there are basically three motivations for serving God. And each of them has their place. One motivation is a fear of punishment from God. The other is serving God out of love, gratitude for what he's done for you. And the final one is the promise of rewards. And if you ask most people, what is the most common motivator that God uses with people? Typically what you'll hear is, well, I bet in the Old Testament, it's the fear of punishment from God. And I bet in the New Testament, it's a love for God, gratitude for what he's done in Jesus. But in reality, in both Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the main theme, the primary theme that God uses to motivate his people is the promise of rewards, either here in this life or in the life to come. Now, I got to ask you, does that surprise you? 
God's primary motivation for obedience in the Bible is rewards. Why is that? Well, it's because God wired us. God created us to seek the greater good for ourselves. Seeking rewards is not a bad thing at all. It's not selfish. It's not simple. It's the way God wired us as human beings. I want you to listen to this quote from Blaise Pascal. He said, all men seek happiness or pleasure. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Now, back in Pascal's day, that word happiness meant joy, pleasure, contentment, whatever the greater good happens to be. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves is this, is this universal drive to pursue pleasure sinful? Is it selfish? Or did God put that in our hearts? Well, I believe the Bible teaches that God placed it in your heart to go after what makes you joyful, to go after what gives you pleasure. I believe it's God's doing in this case. Now, I happen to know that there are a lot of people who think the Christian life has little to do with being pleased, that our service to God should be one of just duty and, and obedience, and that's it. And I want to challenge that thinking this morning with a very simple statement. It is not seeking pleasure in life that causes us problems. It's where we seek our pleasure. This is a biggie, people. You need to let this sink in. It's not seeking pleasure in life that causes us problems. It's where we seek our pleasure. See, the, the problem is the fact that we're seeking pleasure apart from God in things God never intended for us. God created us to seek after what's best for ourselves, but are we seeking after what the world says is best or what God says is best? Let's let Jesus speak to this in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants us to seek his rewards, his good things. And when we're storing up treasures here on earth, those will ultimately be worthless, right? They're going to be destroyed by moths and vermin. They're going to be stolen. They won't last. But eternal rewards, by definition, are eternal. See, we all seek joy and pleasure in life. The question we got to ask is, where is God in my pursuit of pleasure? Over in 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul instructs us to put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Isn't that a neat verse? Is God interested in our pleasure? Absolutely. It says right here that he richly provides for our enjoyment. And all this supports my first point that God created us to pursue pleasure. But he wants us to fulfill that desire properly. For example, the desire for food, it's a good thing. Gluttony is not. The desire for sex is God-given. It's a good thing. Fulfilling that desire outside of marriage is not. You see, it's the way we pursue pleasure that makes all the difference between God-centered enjoyment and self-focused sin. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, once made this powerful remark. He said, if there lurks in our minds the notion that to desire our own good and enjoyment is a bad thing, I submit 
that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an arrogant or ignorant rather child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's the problem. We are far too easily pleased. The problem is we pass over God's greater reward and we settle for the cheap imitations of this world. That's the problem. It reminds me of a time I was, I was driving down the road and I was getting hungrier and hungrier, but I kept waiting for that perfect restaurant to pop up, right? And eventually I just said, I'll oh, forget it. And I pulled over and I ate at McDonald's. Yeah, I know. Okay, yeah, whatever. It was okay. But what was really painful about that McDonald's trip was not once it settled in my stomach. What was really painful was I got back in the car and like at the next exit, I see this sign that says Mighty Fine Burgers. I'm like, oh, dang, if you just wait. It was too late, right? I'd already settled for the cheap imitation. It's been said, you're only going to do what God wants you to do if you believe God pays better dividends than the world pays. Nobody's going to do something for nothing. See, we should gravitate toward what pays the best dividends. You want the good news? God promises the highest reward on your investment. It's so good that 1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Folks, no matter how great you think in your mind it's going to be in heaven, your mind hasn't even scratched the surface of the pleasures that await you there. And God's got to be amazed at how we substitute the mud pies of this world for the infinite joy he offers now, let me take a little aside here. I think I need to clarify a few things about God wiring us to pursue pleasure. First of all, pursuing pleasure is not the same as having fun. Okay, I'm not talking about doing whatever feels good in the moment. Often we have to sacrifice what is fun or easier in the short term to get greater satisfaction in the long run. And we all know about this, right? If I want to stay healthy, if I want to stay fit, I have to sacrifice my desire to eat bluebell after every meal. I mean, we deny ourselves in the short term because ultimately we're looking for that which will please us the most. Remember that Pascal quote? He said, even the person who hangs himself is pursuing pleasure. He wants to find peace from his pain, and he's betting that the pain of hanging himself will be worth the pleasure of being free from that life of suffering. So pursuing pleasure is not the same as having fun. Second, pursuing pleasure requires discipline and sacrifice. You know, as Christians, we're called to discipline ourselves, to deny ourselves certain pleasures in life. But the reason we do that is so that we can find greater enjoyment in God. That's why we do the sacrifices in life. So I may deny myself the pleasure of watching a football game in order to help out a friend in need. But in the end, I'll end up with a greater sense of satisfaction because as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. God doesn't ask us to just deny ourselves pleasures. He wants us to pursue the greater pleasures. And that requires discipline. It requires sacrifice. 
Over in Hebrews 11, God says the reason Moses gave up the treasures and the pleasures of Pharaoh's palace is because he was looking ahead to his reward. And look at Hebrews 11:6. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. According to this verse, it's impossible to even please God unless you believe he's a rewarder. God wants you to seek the greater rewards, not to settle for worldly pleasures. Why? That's my second point. Because worldly pleasure is fleeting and it will not fulfill. See, worldly pleasures are the mud pies that many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, settle for in life. They are the cheap imitations that try to fill that void, that longing we all have for real joy. Over in the book of Ecclesiastes, through the life of Solomon, God has given us a demonstration of the futility of seeking after worldly pleasures, that worldly pleasures fleeting and will not fulfill. In Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 1, Solomon kind of lays out his purpose statement. He says this, I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Solomon says, I'm going to try everything the world has to offer. And he does. Let me walk you through this. In verse 2, he tries laughter. Okay, he surrounds himself with the best comedians, Jimmy Fallon in his living room, so to speak. Right? Then over in verse 3, he turns to drinking, throws one party after another after another. In verse 4, he becomes consumed with work and accomplishments. He's a workaholic. He wants achievement. He wants success. He thinks that's going to bring him pleasure. Then over in verse 7, he hires servants to be at his beck and call. He tries idleness, just relaxing. In verse 8, he amasses incredible wealth. You know, some have estimated that Solomon's assets would have totaled trillions upon trillions of dollars. He would have dwarfed Jeff Bezos. Incredible. He had so much wealth. In verse 8, it says he acquires the best entertainers, brings Hollywood into his home, so to speak. In verse 8, he turns to sex as a means of pleasure. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Good night. Right? Maybe many good nights. I don't know. <laughs> but think about that. 700 wives. You know what that means? That means 700 sets of in-laws, guys. <laughs> guys all went from... Oh. Yeah. Stick with the 300 concubines. Anyhow, in verse 12, one more. Verse 12, he tries wisdom and intellectual pursuits. I mean, he pretty much covers the whole gamut, right? And then verse 10 kind of sums it all up. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And Solomon was the happiest, most joyful, most fulfilled man who ever walked planet Earth. Am I right? Wrong. Look at verse 17. Solomon cries out, so I hated life. I hated life. His summary of all that he had done, from the pursuit of wisdom to the overindulgence in wine and women, it was summarized in one word. It's used 35 times in this book. Meaningless. Vanity. Foolishness, depending on your translation. 35 times. Folks, no one alive today will ever have the combination of wisdom, power, wealth, and influence that Solomon had. 
And I believe God allowed Solomon to have it all to show us the futility of worldly pleasure, to show us that worldly pleasures will not satisfy the deepest hunger in our soul. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper says, the world has an inconsolable longing. He tries to satisfy the longing with scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, ascetic rigors, managerial excellence, etc. But the longing remains. And then he asks, what does this mean? What does it mean? It means that we're seeking after something, but it's not going to be found apart from God and his pleasures. And that's my third and final point. Lasting pleasure is found only in God. The deepest, most enduring pleasure is found only in God. Not from God, but in God. Here's the key to everything I'm saying this morning. Our quest is not simply joy. It is joy in God. Our quest is not simply pleasure. It is finding pleasure in God. God is the end of your search for pleasure, not the means to some other end. And if you try to use God like a holy vending machine to give you stuff that'll please you, it won't work. Because in the final analysis, that which ultimately fills the longing of our heart is none other than God himself. The Lord is our exceeding joy. Not the streets of gold, not the reunion with relatives, not any other blessing of heaven. Those things are all good, but they're just the icing on the cake. You know, Solomon came to this exact same conclusion in Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25. He said, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. And here's the key. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? See, Solomon acknowledges that there is fulfillment. There is joy, there is pleasure in eating and working and playing. But apart from God, those things won't satisfy our deepest longings. It's been said the infinite abyss inside of us can only be filled by an infinite God. That's why Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And when we finally discover that and seek our pleasure in him, then we can eat drink, and find enjoyment in life. So you can't have pleasure here on earth, but it's limited, right? The best is yet to come. It's stored up for us in heaven. And that too is by God's design. You know, there will always be a certain groaning, a certain longing that remains. That, my friends, is heaven. And it's there so that we'll set our hearts, our affections on God and eternal things so that we'll seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We can't have joy here on earth, though. I mean, even in the midst of difficulties, right? Paul, writing from prison, said this, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Paul is saying you can have joy even in suffering. It's not that the suffering itself is joyful or pleasurable. It's the fact that even in sufferings, we know that God's going to redeem them, he's going to bring about good, and the end game will be rewards in heaven. So let me close with this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, know for certain that you are going to heaven. You have eternal life and nothing can separate you from God's love. But the quality of your life here on earth, whether you want a good life here 
and the quality of your life in heaven, whether you want those rewards and the best life possible in heaven, it's all based on what you do in the few short days you have here on earth. So please, 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 don't settle for the mud pies the world offers. The best, most enduring joy is found only in God. Not from God, but in God. Let's pray. Lord, right now, I just want to thank you so much that not only have you rescued us from our own sin, not only have you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, and there's nothing we can do to add to what he did on the cross. We receive that gift by faith. But I thank you that once we have that, once we have been adopted into your family, you're never kicking us out. No matter how messy our life gets, nothing can separate us from your love. And I just pray right now, if there's anybody listening to me and they're not absolutely sure that they're going to heaven, that they would just say, Jesus, I'm done trusting in anything else. I believe your promises 150 plus that the minute I put my faith in you, I'm forgiven and I have eternal life forever. I am trusting in that and that alone. And then God, for all of us who have put our faith in you, I pray that we would not settle for the mud pies of this world, that we would not get caught up in the pursuits of Solomon that end in meaninglessness, vanity, foolishness, because ultimately we're going to say, I hate all that stuff. It's not going to fulfill. You and you alone are the only one who can give us true joy, true pleasure, true satisfaction, true peace. So help us to pursue hard after your rewards. Do not store up treasures here, but store up treasures in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys, have a great day in the Lord, okay? We'll see you.